Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead. Our town, their future. Please welcome your host, Aaron Menzel. My guest today struggled through substance use disorder, has been in recovery for many years, and is now a recovery coach and peer specialist with Green County Human Services. I'm so pleased to welcome Carlos Rivera to the show. Because you did struggle with addiction, right? Mm-hmm. So what's your, the start of your story? The start of my story? Yeah. Well, childhood, um, I mean, as a, as a young boy, it seemed normal. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm saying this not to degrade my parents at all, but they were, they did drugs. Uh, they did cocaine. Okay. Prior to us being born, they did marijuana, they drank every weekend. And so for me, I grew up in an environment where it was a norm. My uncles, my aunts, everybody got high off something. Right. So to be in that environment and then in the society that I lived in in Chicago, everybody's doing something. Coupled with stuff that goes on at home. Right. Arguments, flare-ups, um, stuff that goes in with Indian family, uh, sexual things that happens. Right. Yeah. Um, sometimes you're led to things as a child, and you don't know what you're being led to. Yeah. Yeah, it's so, hard as a child to discern. Right. You know what's right, right and wrong, especially depending right. on your environment, like you said. Right. And so, for example, incest. At, that happens at an early age within a family. Unit. Mm-hmm. It can mess a child up in their teens. Yeah. It can mess them up growing up. I can mess them up for their entire life, right? It, it, yeah. It's, it, it's a strong possibility. Mm-hmm. But it's stuff like that that has happened. Um, I can talk about it now. Yeah. But then, you know, rejection from mm-hmm. peers. Uh, all of these other little intricate things happening in my world. Right. And not having my parents. I mean, they did what they could. Mm-hmm. Um even though they drank every weekend, they did coke every weekend, they partied every weekend, I didn't have that one-on-one. Yeah. So I couldn't voice what was going on. I couldn't voice certain things because either I was intimidated to do so or I felt like I wasn't going to be hurt. Mm-hmm. So, I, so then, you know, and then so having to deal with the household like that at an early age, I started just trying to avoid being home on the weekends. It's the only way to deal with it, yeah. to have some type of normality. But I'll go to my sister, everybody's smoking marijuana. Mm-hmm. So I get into smoking marijuana. The guys in the neighborhood drinking liquor. I get into drinking liquor. You know? Yeah. And then it led from one thing to the next. It went from marijuana to liquor, from liquor to acid, from acid to shrooms, from shrooms to to cocaine. By the time I was 15, 16, I was doing cocaine. Wow. I did PCP. I did everything. Yeah. Because that was the environment that I was raised in. Everybody did something. Mm -hmm. But it was because, more than likely, some people had broken homes. Mm -hmm. There was always a correlation to some type of uh, dysfunction. Right. Or trauma. Or trauma. Yeah. Yeah. 
within the family unit, you know, then you're living in a in a in a in a world where, in the early '90s in Chicago, gangs were everywhere. It's a pretty dangerous time in Chicago, wasn't yeah. it? Oh yeah, yeah, it was like, I think the statistics were every every 24 to 48 hours they were finding a body somewhere. Wow. So having to deal with the gang activity and trying to avoid it at all costs, but you're living in a neighborhood where if you live in a certain neighborhood and other guys from different gangs see you in that neighborhood, you're automatically one of them. Mm -hmm. So dealing with that adversity for young men, it was rough. Yeah, that's, that's so contrary to like Greene County, the way that people live here. It's like almost a foreign concept to think about living like that or like growing up in and trying to avoid those things yeah it's really hard for me to even grasp well, because yeah. I grew up in the middle of nowhere Colorado and I had nine people in my class so like for right. me like to be able to like picture that in my head is really hard so well, yeah. yeah well then dealing with death yeah death is a common thing especially when you you, you have Gangs, drugs, money, and all that mixed in, this, in, the com in broken communities where the government knows it's happening. Yeah. But it's still happening no matter what they do. So at the end of the day, you can be talking to your friend one day and the next day they can be gone. Yeah. You know? That's a lot of trauma. My cousin, yeah. I'll give you an example. My cousin got stabbed in his heart at 18 years old, 17 years old. He's on his birthday. That's devastating. My uncle got shot in the chest, died, got killed in the bar. Uh, I've known this other guy I grew up with, talked to him for like 20 minutes that morning. I was headed home. Yeah. Come back around, he's laid out with a blanket cover, shot in the back. So seeing all this mm -hmm. growing up, and plus the home environment and all this other stuff, you develop this instinct like where it's like you have to watch everywhere you go. Mm -hmm. Not that you're scared, but you just... Again, self-preservation, right? Self-preservation. Yeah. If you knew a gang was at war in this community, you have to take the long route to school. I'm not right. going through that war zone, you know. So, being caught up in in those environments, I think that's why a lot of people nowadays. I I don't know how it is now. I know when I go to Chicago, sometimes it's not as bad as a, well, I don't know, but it's not as mm -hmm. bad as when I saw things growing up. Um, right. But for the most part, um, I think that addiction is very common out there because of either the, the society that they're living, that environment, or the home environment has an effect on them. Right. And then there's, again, here goes another mm -hmm. issue. Yeah. <laughs> Undiagnosed mental illness that yeah. may run in the family. That's huge. If it's not diagnosed, how do we know what we're dealing with? Yeah. So there was some of that going on. You know, um, so in a nutshell, by the time I hit 18, 19 years old is when I started using heroin. I was introduced to it. That was the monster of all the drugs right there. That thing was just... Did you try it first, like, recreationally? Like, Creation. in, pa in yeah. passing? Like, I, you were already in that environment, so... I, I did it through... I guess I'm going to say through stupidity because I couldn't find marijuana one day and I used to smoke a lot of marijuana and a family member of mine took high and I was like, hey, let me some smoke or whatever. He's like, 
you don't want what I got. Mm. I was like, man, I thought I was grown. So he tells me, hey, I'll let you try it, but don't do it three days in a row. You're going to get stuck. And you know what you got that, man? You know what you're talking about. Right, you but know I, everything at 18. Right, yeah. 19. Yeah. But I see the thing is I should have known better because I seen people that were withdrawing off it, but I always said that wouldn't be me. Mm. I had that arrogance. Right. And that pride. And yeah, then, no one's strong enough to to beat that. No. Yeah. It took years of damaging relationships. Um, it took years of go trying to go into rehab, running from it, only to come back and use again, relapsing. Um, right hitting rock bottom, like losing everybody that has even attempted to help you because you manipulate your way through just because you are sick. Right. And I remember, I'll never forget, I was like maybe 130, 40 pounds wet. That's so thin. I was super thin. Yeah. And I was working with a distant family member of mine, and I broke down. He said, man, what's going on with you? He said, man, if I don't, if, if I don't find God, I'm going to end up dead or in jail. This addiction is killing me. And he said, well, my dad's a pastor. I said, I didn't know that. I said, but I want to know the truth. And he's still looking at me. He goes, well, he'll tell you the truth. I was like, all right, let's go. So um, I met him in the middle of the addiction. Um, I had been to churches. A, a lot different churches I and mean, that's why I wanted to know you know what I mean where he's at yeah I met him and I just felt an overwhelming power and presence at that church like I never felt before in my life and I've been to other ones before I said this is it so I ended up taking the step I got I took the step I got baptized in Jesus name and I started trying to attend but even then I was still struggling and I remember I was struggling at one point and he called me into his office and he just went straight to me. His name's Pastor Louis he, he He sat me down and he goes, do you love your family? I said, yeah, he told me straight out, no you don't. Oh, that's probably hard to hear. <laughs> that would be hard to hear. <laughs> it it shell-shocked me. Yeah, I bet. And I'm look like, looking at him like, yes I do. He says, no you don't. And I said again, and it was three times we went through this, and he's just looking at me to see how I respond. And I was like, yes, I do. How are you going to tell me I don't love my family? He goes, yeah. no, you don't. And I stood quiet. I said, he goes, want me to tell you why? And then he goes, you don't even love yourself. Mm. How can you tell me you love your family if you're destroying yourself? That's profound. And I broke. That would be hard to hear or realize that, like, mm-hmm. you are breaking yourself doing this. That'd yeah, be really I was killing myself. Yeah. And then he told me, you can't tell me you love anybody if you don't even have the strength to fight this and to heal. You can't do it for your daughter. You can't do it for, you know, you got to love yourself enough. And I, when he told me that, it cut me so deep that I went home. And I said, 
I looked up and said, okay. And to say that it went to peaches and cream after that, no. I just started working harder on becoming a better person and, you know, reaching out for help when it's needed and trying my best. And um, I had three relapses in the process. Um, Which is to be expected, right? I mean, now that you're at the position you're in now, you know that people are going to relapse. It, it, it's, it's a, it can be a part of it. Yeah. In, in most cases, it is. Yeah. But there is a possibility where you don't have to. And I think that with me was, uh, there was one time, I'm, I can talk about all the times I relapse if you want. I mean, if you if you want to talk about it, you go ahead. Okay, yeah. so, but you see, it's crazy because God was always in the middle of it. These experiences I had were just, they were just, they weren't the norm for me. So well, the first time I relapsed, I was on the bus going to the west side of Chicago to go get me some heroin. I don't know this lady from Adam. She's sitting there across from me, and she kind of picked up what I was doing. I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or what. So we both get off. <laughs> we both get off the bus at the same time, and I know where the drug spot is at. So I'm gonna start headed that way. She stops me. I will never forget her face. She stops me. She goes, "Stop playing games. You know God is calling you." That's crazy. Like a random person says that to you, know right? This woman from Adam. It shocked me for a minute, but I was already in autopilot, so I was like, it's just probably a coincidence. So that was the first episode. But I remember that day when I used I was on the backyard, a white a white dove landed on the gate and did not move. Just when it was just you? watched me and I was just like, What the, what is this? So anyways, after that one time I got sober after a while. And then there I went through another entanglement or whatever. And then the second time was, no, there was a total of four. Because another one came to my head. That's the, the second time was, I went to, I was stressed out. I said, ah, I'm just going to go give up, right? Yeah. So I went to the city and I went to the little neighborhood that I grew up in. And I was standing by the liquor store. This man gets out of a car. Right, mind you, I had just finished getting high. This man gets out of a car, and I'm already feeling the, the heroin. Mm -hmm. But something like a reflection came from him, like it was a flash from a camera. And I'm like, I thought he was taking pictures of me, so I run across the street. I'm like, hey, man, you taking pictures of me? And I'm looking dead at him. He was a tall black man. He had a trench coat on with a scarf. And he turns to me, he goes, I'm looking for a church. Mind you, I'm like, there's no church around here. I was raised out here. And he just smiles at me and goes, oh, there's a church. There is. Oh. And I froze for a minute. I said, well, there's not one around here. He goes, yeah, there is. You'll see. He told me like that. This man jumps in his car. Now, mind you, he jumps in his car, and I'm freezing. I'm like, man, is this you talking to me? So he jumps in the car. He turns the corner. I run to the corner. The car was completely gone. Like, that leaves me speechless. I feel like, what do you say to that, you know? How, 
Yeah. I, I was puzzled for weeks. Yeah, I would have been. And yeah. I it literally, my heart, I was scared. Yeah. I was like, what? And I explained it to my pastor, and he was just like, he's just nodded his head. He was like, you got to fight this. There's a reason why these things are happening to you. I'm mm-hmm. like, well, can you explain that? He goes, I can only explain it scripturally. It was a possibly an angel. We don't know. I can't give you. He goes, just by describing what you felt and what you saw, he goes, I'm speechless. He couldn't even say nothing. Yeah. So, so after that one, I was still a little hard-headed. Mm-hmm. I was still fighting that other part of me, right? So I remember I must have been clean for about a year and a half. That's a long time. Yeah. And about a year and a half. And me and my girl, we bumped heads for some odd reason. I just left. I was like, I ain't going to deal with this. So what do, we, what do people in addiction do? They run to the mm-hmm. drug to deal with their problems. So I said, I'm just going to get high once. It won't hurt me. I'm in the city. She ends up going to the city, so we ended up staying over there. And it was like the second or third day we were there. I was staying there. And she went back. So she came to the city to be with me because we were still young and acting. Yeah. She goes back, and I stood behind. All of a sudden, I, I went and I found some heroin. I couldn't find some, but I found some. She already knew what I was on. Um, I put myself in a, the, and you know, in Chicago, there's big buildings. Yeah, yeah. Like 16-unit buildings. Mm-hmm. So I go into this building to shoot up, and I have my, I'm all tied up, I'm tied off, and I had it all fixed. And right when I went to poke, I heard the boy say, go home. Mind you, I'm the only one in this hallway. I went up all the way to the top. Nobody was there. I came back down. And I'm like, man, are my ears deceiving me? I thought I was going crazy. Yeah. I was like, I must be, I must. And I heard it again, but it was like gentle and authoritative, go home. And all of a sudden, I felt this like presence come upon me. And I went into a trance and I saw the church I was going, I I would go to. I just shot up and I was panicky. I ran and got to the house. I get to the house. It was a Wednesday night. I get to the house. She's like, where are you? You just got back. I'm like, I got I to gotta go. I got to go. I went to the church house that night. When I walked in, one of the evangelists started shouting. They were just praying for me. When I walked in. <laughs> so I'm going to give you the last one. <laughs> oh, my God. That it was for. The last one that really did it, I was clean for two years. Wow. And... Um, I'll never forget this experience. And this is what this is what really said I'm done. That was it. This was it for me. I was still being, I was testing the water still. So I was going through some deep anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Instead of me um, seeking for help, I thought I could figure it out. So I was fed up with everything. I was on the expressway. I went to go see my mom. Mind you, I was already in pre- pre-contemplation in my head, which I didn't identify because I didn't take no classes or anything for it. Right. I just was in my head like, I'm just tired of everything. I'm just going to go probably get high or whatever. Mm-hmm. I called my pastor, calls me. He says, go back home. I was like, how, how you know? <laughs> right? Wait, what do you, how me. do you know what I'm right. doing? <laughs> he's, yeah. like, he's like, go back home. I was like, what do you mean go back home? I said, I'm going to go see my mom. He says... And go back home because the devil's going to try to kill you. He told me this. 
So this is my experience. He told me this. And I was nah, we're good. I'm just going to go. I brushed it off. My sister, she used heroin. I get there. She sees me all stressed out. She goes, you want to use, don't you? I'm like, yeah, I do. She goes, let's go. Instead of saying no. Right, right. Or like, like helping go. you. Help yeah. <laughs> she's like, let's go. So yeah. I'm like, okay. What I didn't realize is that when I had quit before, I was using a large amount because mm-hmm. I, had, I my body was immune to it. So I went and bought some and I used. And I overdosed. Wow. I was sitting in my truck. I'm going to tell you now, this is where it gets really deep and I'm asking the Lord to give me guidance to write a book on this. Um, I came out my body. You had an out-of-body experience. I literally yeah. came out of my body and I seen my body slouched over in the truck. And I can see a distance this way and a distance that way and a bit behind me. But I'm seeing my body in the truck. I'm standing right outside the truck, but I could see my body. I go back in my body. And I come out my body again. And at that point, my dad had pulled me out the car and he had my body against the building. And I'm standing right outside of him. So the, so he got my body against the building here and I'm like right there. And I'm, I couldn't say nothing. I'm just looking at everything going on. Couldn't say anything. And then the vision turns, and then all of a sudden I then see them putting my body on the, on the ambulance guy that they're putting me on the um, on the bed mm-hmm. to roll me into the hospital. And then I went back in my body. I came out my body one more time while I was in the hospital. When I came out my body the last time I was in the hospital, I could see everybody in the room. And I can see my body with the tubes in it, helping me to breathe, and they're... they're they're wondering if I'm going to pull through or not. And uh, you could see, I can name the people that I've seen. So did you crying. meet the people? Like, they were family and then, like, there medical was, staff? Yeah, there was my uh, my sister was, my sister and her boyfriend was right there. My other sister was here. My cousin was rolling in because he was in a wheelchair. I seen that, and then I seen the staff right here and a doctor on this side. And I'm outside my body looking at all this. So... I go back into my body, and there was things that happened in between that I didn't know. So you don't remember what happened like between those experiences? No, there was only times when I come in my body and come out, but I couldn't. I didn't know what was happening in between those other like the right. other scenes. And so when I when I finally pulled through, I finally pulled through out of it. They cleared the room. They got me breathing. They checked my vitals. Mm-hmm. They said, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm feeling better. I'm feeling okay. They said, you okay? They gave me some blood work. They gave me something to eat. Then after that, every, the whole thing calmed down. Um, the doctor comes in before he starts letting everybody else come in to visit because my our pastor and the people from the church got there. So there was people waiting to come see me. And... He walks in and it looked like he saw a ghost. And he's, he comes and he tells me, do you don't remember anything that happened before you got up? And I tell him what my body experience was like and he was just looking at me interested. Mm-hmm. He goes, you don't remember me giving you a pen and putting it in your hand, in your left hand? And I'm like, no. He goes, your left hand is your writing hand because I asked your sister, correct? And I was like, yeah. So he was like, you don't remember writing anything at all. I'm like, no. He goes, 
I have put a pin in your hand to see where your vitals, because I knew you were hearing, but I wanted to see what your vital signs were like, if you can grasp or you can grab. He goes, I check your right hand, you weren't grabbing, you weren't responding. So I put a pin in your left hand and I put a piece of paper there. And I asked you to write something. He goes, and here I'm holding it in your hand. All of a sudden your left hand grabbed the pen. And your hand just started writing. And then the pen dropped and he said when the pen dropped, he had checked my vitals and my body was still limp. So he was puzzled like, what in the world? Yeah. But he had described when that started happening that a presence came into the room. And he couldn't understand what he was feeling, but he said he felt this warmth coming to the room. So he goes, I have the piece of paper, and I want to make sure you aren't uh, awake. It's like, I wasn't. I don't know. Yeah. So he goes, look at what you wrote. And, I, and he goes, and I want to keep this. I said, sure. It said, in clear writing, Jesus Christ is here. And the pen dropped. So, again, like, speechless. Like, how do you explain any of that? You it's, know? It's, it's, it's just my life experience. Yeah. I, yeah. I, can't ask, I can't tell anybody to believe, but I know what my life experience was. Right. Um, and that is when everything just started. When I came out after that, I just started pressing harder and harder towards my recovery and trying to live right and do things right. And did you get some, um, did you like seek therapy for the anxiety and the depression or anything like that at that point? No. no. I actually preached a sermon on that season in my life. It lasted for four years. I did in the beginning, but I didn't like the way the medications and the, and the pills were making me feel. It felt mm -hmm. like I was getting worse and I couldn't function. So I stopped. I stopped it. And I, all I did, kept doing, was going to church and praying and saying, God, I know you're not going to leave me like this. I don't want to be like this. I don't want to have this anxiety. I don't want to have this deep depression. And all of a sudden, about four years later, it just broke. So it just went away, basically? I think, yeah. I think he took it away. I think he healed me from it. Um... Do we fight anxiety and depression when it hits us? Sometimes we do, but it's a difference when you're dealing with it for like four years straight. Yeah, it's a long and time. And nobody knows what's going on with you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a reality that they don't never understand and they won't get. Yeah, yeah. Another reality I think that a lot of people don't really understand is what it feels like to withdraw from... Any sort of drug. What was your experience like during that time Oof. to withdraw? Because I, I don't think that people realize how, how bad it is. How bad it is, yeah. Withdraw is something else. I mean, I withdraw quite a few times, but I yeah. hated it. One time I had withdrawn, I stood up for about two weeks. And the cramping, the vomiting, the insomnia, you can't sleep. There was times I would get up shouting. I can't sleep, and I'll start punching my arms and my legs because it felt like there was a million ants running inside my body. Wow. And I'll be up for days on end, no sleep whatsoever. Is it that you feel so terrible that you can't sleep, or that that is the symptom, is insomnia? That's the symptom. Yeah. 
depending how much you use if I was, if you're using a lot you'll be up for like two weeks and then what happens with insomnia you start hallucinating after yeah. a while things are start appearing in the room that's not there yeah that's really unhealthy like the lack of sleep for someone who isn't withdrawing yeah is unhealthy let alone when you're withdrawing and having other symptoms your body hurts your bone hurts your joints kill you for about for me my experience is that it was like Three to four years into recovery, I wake up with my hands killing me and my joints killing me every morning. That. That's interesting. I w- Do you know the reason why well, like the joints ache? Well, because heroin attacks, it attacks certain parts of your body. It attacks your, I think, uh, your cartilage, your bone marrow after a while. It, it, it does damage. Wow. Yeah, it does a lot of damage. Yeah. I still feel it sometimes. There's days I feel like, but now it's very faint. But I remember for the first years, I would wake up early day just holding my hands and almost crying because they hurt so bad. Does it make being sober more difficult when you have like those aches and pains? Like if you're in the throes of you know addiction and you. You don't feel that pain, right? Because you're constantly... Because you're constantly using Yeah. I was expressing to the group today, as a matter of fact, that one of my triggers in, my, in, my, in me attempting to recover and in my recovery was getting sick. Because when you're coming off heroin, it's almost like a flu-like symptom. Yeah. It, they're very similar. Headache, vomiting, nauseated. So when I started getting sick, sober, it would trigger me because I think I'm going to withdraw. <sighs> So I'll be like, I'm going to Woodrow. Why am I going to Woodrow? I've been clean for this amount of time. So I thought I was just having a... <laughs> right? <laughs> a flashback yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. But you're I, legitimately sick. I'm yeah. legitimately <laughs> sick. I'm le- legitimately sick. Right. That's, that's interesting. Yeah. Thank you for listening. And check out Better Broadhead's website at betterbroadhead.org. Thank you for listening to another episode of Clear Thinking, brought to you by Better Broadhead. For information of upcoming events and meetings, please visit our website at betterbroadhead.org and be sure to subscribe to our email list.